Hello, I'm James George and welcome to Life in Football, the podcast that interviews top professionals working in different fields within our beautiful game. If you love football and dream about working full-time in sport, then this is the place to be. This week I am joined by the wonderful Jules Breach. Jules seems to be all over our TVs at the moment, presenting the England games on Channel 4, BT Sport every Saturday, covering European games for CBS, and Jules starts a new role presenting on the ITV's new EFL show next weekend. I've known Jules for over 10 years now, and I'm really excited for everyone to understand how hard she had to work to reach the top. Morning, Jules. Are you all ready for the new football season? Um, not really, no. <laughs> if I'm honest, I think I've had, how many, how many weeks have I had off now? I think I've had about five weeks off, but um, whenever the football season comes round again, you're always like, oh, I could just do with one more week, one more week off. But um, no, I'm, I am buzzing. Um, obviously, Football League gets away this weekend and then the Premier League all comes back next week. So yeah, I'm absolutely buzzing to get back to it. I, I want to get back into a routine because all this time off means a lot of well, sitting around, going to the pub, seeing friends, going on holiday, but getting back into a routine and getting the prep done, getting back in the studio, getting out to matches. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to getting back to it now. I gather you start this weekend. Are you doing BT and the new EFL show this weekend? No. So BT Sports Score doesn't come back until the first Premier League weekend because um, our pundits only watch Premier League games in the studio. So BT Sports score starts back on the 6th of August. Um, the Football League show on ITV, um, that does come back this weekend, but it's not my first week. It's Hugh Woosencroft who's doing the first show. Um, so I'm not on the Football League show until the following week. And I will be doing both shows on Saturday. Um, that's not going to be a regular thing. Um, ordinarily, I'm going to do BT Sports score on a Saturday and then I'll be doing the Football League highlights um, midweek or when there's Carabao Cup games on, say, a Sunday and we're doing the um, highlights for that. So we'll mix it up a bit. Um, there will be some Saturdays I do, but um, yeah, BT Sports. That would be crazy sport. doing two shows in one day. Yeah, especially when the studios are on opposite sides of London as well. So I've got to get from one to the other. Um, but luckily, because I'll be across all of the scores on... Um, BT Sport anyway by the time I get to the ITV studio um, we've actually got a fair few hours to prep until we go on air because of the time slot that we're on so actually it shouldn't be too bad but it's gonna be a hectic start to the season my first two days are, are pretty crazy the funny thing is normally someone covers non-league or they cover EFL or they cover European games and Premier League games you're going to be covering European <laughs> games Premier League games and EFL because I gather you're still going to be doing the European games as well yeah that's right um how am I going to fit it all in I've worked it out somehow that weirdly a lot of it doesn't clash because obviously with European football they happen in set weeks and there are only some weeks of the season where the Football League have midweek fixtures where I would also be doing that show on a Wednesday for example um but European weeks are pretty crazy because I'll potentially be out reporting at a game, whether that's in London or Manchester or perhaps in Madrid or Barcelona or wherever you might be. And then on a Wednesday, flying back or driving back and then going to the ITV studio for the Football League show. 
And then on Thursday night, I'm going to be covering Manchester United in the Europa League for BT. And so I'll either be based in the studio in London or if Man United are at home, we'll be up at Old Trafford. So it's pretty mad. And then on top of that, I still have my regular studio shows at the Premier League on a Friday and then BT Sports score on a Saturday. So yeah, European weeks are are crazy, but they're they're the best weeks. Like they're the weeks you sort of live for. It's an absolute dream and a joy to be going to these matches and covering these games in the studio so I'm not complaining but yeah it is going to be pretty crazy I think and England games you just started doing England games for Channel 4 that must have been an incredible experience for you yeah it's still quite surreal to be honest I think because it came by as such a whirlwind it was quite it was quite late in the day that that all kind of came together because Channel 4 secured the rights to the Nations League quite close to when they were actually broadcast. So them putting together a team and me being offered the role as the the main host, it still kind of makes me laugh when I think about that because growing up as a kid, you know, I got into football watching England games with my dad just sat on the sofa. So to then be pitch side or in a studio talking about the England games with people like Michael Owen and Joe Cole. It's just, it's just mad. Like it's, it was amazing. It was a great experience. Um, but it was tough obviously because the results weren't exactly pleasing to the audience. Um, let's put it that way. Um, so as the host having to convey that, but also try and keep a lid on things because let's not get carried away. It was just four matches in the nation's league and, you know, everything's all about preparation for the World Cup. So yeah, it was it was a challenging first go at doing England matches. But we like to see it as a nice little warm up for what's to come in September, which I think come those two matches, which are going to be brilliant. Um, we're going to be at the San Siro for the Italy game, which is going to be amazing. I've, I've um, seen my mighty Southampton play at the San oh, Siro. It's it's an, an amazing experience. Have you been there before to the I San have, Siro yet? Yeah, I've done oh. the Champions League. You've been pretty much been to every ground, let's be honest. <laughs> I've got about a bit to these stadiums, especially the you know, the ones um around Europe for Champions League matches. But yeah, I mean that's gonna be pretty special being there. And then um obviously seeing Germany again at Wembley the last time I saw England play Germany at Wembley was in the Euros last year when we won. And that was like one of the best days I've had as a football fan ever. And I was actually there just as a fan last year. I wasn't, I wasn't actually working at that game. So yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to those two matches for Channel 4 and hopefully a nice, good, positive result to report on for England um, ahead of the World Cup, which obviously is going to be amazing. I wasn't going to ask this right now, but as we're talking about games what what's been the best stadium in your you know the most excited you've been going to a stadium what's been the best stadium for you to go to atmosphere history um it's really hard because i i'd probably say it was dortmund um so i think they still call it signal Arena park um yeah i'd say that was the, probably the stadium that surprised me the most. Um, I'd heard about the yellow wall and I'd heard about what an amazing atmosphere you get at Dortmund. And I was expecting it to be good, but I I had no idea how good. Like, it was, like, insane. Like, I've never heard an atmosphere like that before. And there was such a good vibe. Um, there's something about those German teams. When you get to the grounds, 
everyone's drinking beer and like even before the game people were like throwing beer outside and but like in a nice way in a positive way having fun um and I was just absolutely blown away by the atmosphere in that stadium um I can't actually remember who Dortmund were playing that day but it was about it was about three or four seasons ago they won but the atmosphere that night was just incredible and I remember thinking wow that is one of the best atmospheres I've I've ever heard in a European stadium um and Anfield is always incredible on a European night I was there for that comeback against Barcelona corner taken quickly by Trent and Origi and that was one of the best like nights in terms of atmosphere I've ever witnessed at any stadium and it's probably like one of the best Champions League games you could have ever seen live so I'd probably say those two um are the most special um but then I don't know it's so hard to pick because I've been to the new Camp and to the Bernabeu and they're both amazing as well so yeah it's 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 a tricky one to pick, but I would say Dortmund stands out for me. Do you ever get a day off? Because it looks, you've just said your schedule. Like, do you ever actually just take a day off and shut off from football? Or even on your day off, are you preparing for the next game? Not much. And I'm sure your wife can, can tell you a bit about that. Because uh, even when I'm arranging to see my girlfriends um, and I go to the pub, it's always, right, well, can we go around this time because I want to watch this game? Or can we go now and then we'll get back back to mine in time for kickoff? Or can we go to a pub that's playing the football? Um, because, yeah, I mean, it it is my life, but I, want, but I want it to be like that. I don't want to miss games. So once the football season kicks off, I do have days off, but you never really switch off, if I'm honest. Um, I'm... If you switch off for a day, you miss a whole day's worth of football news. And when you're covering all the different competitions I'm covering, the minute you switch off, the minute you sort of lose track of a story or, you know, the, the, my worst fear is going into a, a studio or a, a green room at work and people be talking about something that I'm like, I haven't heard that. Like, that would just be, I would hate that. I just, I, it, I would feel really unprepared. And of course, you can't know everything about everything, but to at least know the gist of a story and have heard about it and then you can ask questions, um, to me, is really important. So once the season starts, um, the answer is no, I don't really switch off. Um, but I don't mind because I love it. I want to watch the games. I'm actually genuinely interested in seeing the results and I would rather watch them live than catch up later because, I don't know, I just like being in that live kind of experience of watching a game while it's on, um, which is why when I have some time off like I've just had I probably do go a bit mad because <laughs> I've got to make I've got to make the most of the time off while I've got it um so yeah it's been it's been a good summer but once the season kicks off this weekend I'm going to be pretty flat out for the next how many months nine months yeah so we've known each other for 10 to 12 years now you obviously met my wife working for Bid TV, a shopping channel that's like QVC, many years ago. We've been on multiple holidays together. Mm -hmm. And I remember my wife, when she first met you, she was just like, so I've got this really good-looking, fun friend who I work with. And every time we see each other, she's always watching sport. You would love her. She's like, whenever we're... Like getting ready to go out, she's not. She's not even chatting to me. She's watching the watching the football. Well, I'm like a really good mate, don't I? Yeah. <laughs> and then you came, obviously you came over to see us when we were living in California, and 
And the girls went out. I remember the girls going out for breakfast. And I think it was the Wimbledon final. The cricket yeah. was on. I think the Formula yeah. One might have been on as well. <laughs> and you stayed in with me to watch all the sport when the girls all went out for breakfast. It just yeah. shows that you, your your love for sport isn't new. This isn't a, a, a fake thing. You, you've just loved it your whole life. And you obviously grew up in a lot of your time in Jamaica playing a lot of tennis. So let's take us back to... When, when you actually began your love for sport and, and then we'll go through and how you got into working in the media. Yeah, so my dad, um, before he retired a couple of years ago, uh, was an executive chef in hotels. So him and my mum spent a lot of time traveling around. And one of those jobs that um, my dad got was in Jamaica working in a hotel over there. So the whole family moved out there when I was eight. Um, and back in the early 90s, I've given my age away there, um, uh, there wasn't as much to do in Jamaica as there is now. Like now, if you went to Jamaica, there's a lot more sort of after school things to do. And it's a lot more built up than it was back then. So pretty much all that I did was what was on offer, which was sport. Um, and my mum was actually a pretty keen tennis player already. And so she put a racket in my hands at the age of eight. Uh, and we were really lucky because we could play at the hotel that my dad was working at and used the tennis courts there. Um, and I just fell in love with it. I, I loved playing tennis and it became a way for me to actually make friends. Um, so right from an early age, sport for me was something that actually helped me fit in because as you can imagine, moving to Jamaica as an eight-year-old, knowing no one and being different, um, it wasn't easy. So for me, tennis was my way of making friends and actually having something that was my sort of thing after school. Um, and there's quite a big tennis community out in Jamaica, actually. So I made a lot of really good friends that way and eventually got to a point where I was competing. Um, and I just I loved that competitive side. I mean, anyone who knows me knows how competitive I am, no matter what it is, whether it's a game of tennis or beer pong or whatever it is I never want to lose so um yeah I loved competing and playing in tournaments um and yeah that's where my sort of love of playing sport started and I was I wasn't very good at anything else if I'm honest like I tried other sports and I was I was crap so tennis was my thing um and then I just watched sport on tv my family are pretty sporty anyway like as I said, my mum played tennis, my dad loves football, he comes from Middlesbrough and, you know, his whole life was a Borough fan. So, yeah, it was just a very sporty household and kind of, I didn't really know any other way. And then, obviously, you were living in Jamaica, but you came back to the UK. So why did you come back to the UK? So at about the age of 14, um, so by that point, I'd been in Jamaica for about six, seven years. Um, my mum wanted me to come back to finish my studies over here. Um, she was always very set on, you know, no matter what you decide to do with your life, like go to university and get a degree. So that was the plan. So um, again, back in those days in Jamaica, the schooling system did O-levels rather than A-levels. And my mum wanted me to do A-levels back in England. So um at 14, she said, you know, I think you should go back. And I just refused. I was like, I don't want to leave here. This is my home now. You know, tennis is my life. My friends are here. And I had dreams of becoming a tennis player. And I thought, how am I going to do that in England without my parents there to actually drive me to tennis and all of that stuff? 
So I managed to convince them to let me stay for another year. Uh, and then at 15, the, a year later, she was like, look, you really should go now. And I think by that point, I was a bit like, am I really going to be good enough to become pro? Probably not. Um, I could see like other players around me, like Dustin Brown, who was a player who actually played in my sort of group. Yeah, of friends. seen him a few times play at Wimbledon. Good player. Yeah, like he's brilliant, and he was so much better than the rest of us. And so it was quite obvious that like someone at his standard would make it, but that maybe the rest of us would kind of get to a point where you'd not make it pro, but you can maybe be a coach. And so I thought, actually, maybe I should go back. And, and to be honest, I didn't really have a choice. My mum just made me. Um, so I came back, um, yeah, fifth, at the age of 15 and lived with my auntie and my cousins. And at that point, it just became really difficult to sort of stay driven and interested in tennis. And then I, it had the reverse effect. When I came to England, none of my friends at school here were into sport. None of the girls that I was making friends with really played any sport or were interested in it. So whereas in Jamaica, sport was my way to make friends. When I came here, no one was really interested in sport. So I then sort of didn't really play it that much because I was more focused on fitting in and making friends at school. So it sort of just went like that, really. So that's why I stopped playing competitively. Um, I still pick up a racket now and, and play, but... Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of how that transition happened over here. And then you went to, what did you do at university? What did you study? So I, when I was doing my A-levels at college, um, one of my A-levels was media. And I really enjoyed that course and loved it. And I didn't, if I'm honest, I didn't really want to go to uni. But as I said, my mum was very keen on go to university, get a degree before you do anything else. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to go to uni for three years, I better enjoy it. <laughs> so I just picked the subject that I thought was the most fun. And it was around that time that I started thinking, I wonder whether I could have a career in the media of some sort. Um, so I did a media practice and theory degree at Sussex University, um, which was, it was a great course to do, actually, because it was half practical, half theory. So half of the course was actually being hands-on, learning how to use a camera, understanding all the different roles in a kind of video environment, learning how to write for a magazine, a newspaper, all of those stuff, photography, like every element of the media industry was pretty much covered. Um, and it was doing that really that they'd always need someone to sort of be in front of camera to, you know, do test shots or whatever it would be. And I'd always just be like, I'll do it, whatever. And, you know, like a lot of people get camera shy. And even though I was quite shy and had no idea what I was doing, I'd always just be like, well, I might as well give it a go. And then the more I did that, the more my friends were like, oh, you're like, you should, you're really good at that. Like, you should maybe look into that as like a job. And I was like, oh, God, no, like me, like on camera, I'm not so sure. Um, and yeah, and then eventually, once I finished university, it was in my final year that I thought, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I graduate. I wanted to be a journalist, but I wasn't really sure how to go about doing it. So I was more focused on actually writing rather than being in front of camera. But then I was just watching TV one day and I saw a competition for looking for new presenters on Channel 4's T4. And I was like, well, sod it. I might as well apply. Um, and so I told my friends and they were just like, well, let's just film your audition tape now. So without any thought put into it whatsoever, we just filmed something really quickly on like 
do you remember like we all used to carry like digital cameras out we recorded yeah. like a 30 second video on this rubbish digital camera and I sent it in thinking like I'm never going to hear back from them um, and literally the same day that I handed in my dissertation and basically finished university I got a phone call from T4 saying you've made it down to like the last I think 50 girls in the competition and I was I like this oh. is one story I didn't know about you this is interesting yeah, yeah. Oh. so I got down to the last 50 and then they said we're now going to filter through these audition tapes and find our final 10 and I was like okay well that's that's me done with now uh, and then somehow I made the final 10 and I was like what the hell is going on here and then basically doing that they split us into north north and south so I was part of the south girls so there was five of us in the south five girls in the north and we had to do a series of challenges uh presenting challenges i mean you remember what t4 was like younger. i remember i was i was on it for quite yeah, a while so yeah i remember <laughs> but younger listeners of your podcast james won't know what t4 was it was basically a bit of a sarcastic piss take um so some of the stuff we had to do was like it was purely done to take the piss out of us like we were we were massively embarrassed on on this what concept. year was this just by interest uh, so it was the year that I got the job at Bid TV, so 2008. Right, yeah. Yeah. So it would have been yeah. it would have been about a year after I stopped doing anything on T4. That's interesting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, um, so Rick and Alexa, who were the T4 presenters at the time, actually came down to Brighton, and it just so happened to be in Brighton, which is my hometown, and we filmed some stuff there. And then we had to go to Southend, which I'd never been to before. I was like, oh, I'm going, I'm going to Southend on Sea. Um, and we met the other contestants. So I met a girl called Gemma there, um, who was also one of the other contestants. And Gemma was working at Bid TV. And so we stayed in contact on Facebook. Um, and she just basically, I didn't end up winning that competition, obviously. Otherwise, I would have worked on T4. Um, someone else won it. But by doing that experience, I met Gemma, who was already working as a TV presenter on the shopping channel. And so she said to me, what are you doing when you finish uni? And I was like, I don't know. Now I've done this, I kind of feel like maybe I should try becoming a presenter, but maybe I want to write for a newspaper or something. And she was like, well, let's stay in touch. And I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, oh, it's just one of those things people say, like, let's stay in touch. But she did, bless her. And a few, about two months later, she messaged me and just said, they're looking for new assistant presenters. Like, do you want me to put your name forward? And the rest is history. I went in, had an audition and started the job like a week later. So after graduating in the July, I was offered a full-time job on Bid TV as a live TV presenter by the September, which was just, I was like, I don't know what to do here. Like, how do you present on live TV? Like, I did that T4 competition and I was absolutely awful. So like, how am I now going from that to actually just being put on live TV with an earpiece in my ear with no training but you just, you learn on the job, I suppose. And then I remember when you were at Bid TV with my wife and you've got this good group of friends that you're still friends with today that have gone on to do all sorts of different things. Mm -hmm. And I remember you then getting uh, a job at a local radio station and you did this sports course. So tell us about the transition from Bid TV through to eventually getting the BT gig. Yeah, so I think I spent three years actually full-time at the shopping channel and 
it was the best training grounds that I could have ever had because there's nowhere really that offers live studio experience where it's kind of okay to make mistakes and make a bit of a fool of yourself and learn while you're doing it. Um, so I learned everything I needed to learn about how to become a live TV presenter there. And actually what was great is it was non-scripted. So everything was just natural and you learn to sort of kind of be comfortable with seeing yourself, hearing yourself. And so it was the best three years experience that I could have ever had and, and basically a training ground. But I knew it wasn't where I wanted to end up. And I, because of my love of sport, I always kind of thought I would love to work in football or some kind of sports TV but everyone I was looking at that was doing the jobs I liked were either male or they were women who were a bit older. And so I kind of thought to myself, okay, well, I'll do that one day. Maybe I don't need to go for it yet. Um, but I just kind of was, was going around like doing these sort of like bitty entertainment jobs on like, you know, digital channels. And I just was like, this isn't really me. I feel like I'm talking about stuff that doesn't actually interest me. And all I really care about is like sport and watching football. And that's what really like, what I was really passionate about. So I thought maybe I can just try now. Like it might take me a while to get there. So I might as well give this a go now. And my local radio station in Brighton, Juice, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, um, I knew someone who worked there because when I was at uni, I worked for another radio station and the person who I worked for there moved along to Juice. And so I got back in touch with him and he just said to me, why don't you come in and just chat to the boss here, tell them what you're interested in and go from there. So I did that and they offered me one day's worth of work experience a week, which was unpaid. Um, but actually, I was fortunate that I was still working on the shopping channel. So I was still part-time there freelancing. And I actually got a really lucky kind of break at Sky Poker, where I was doing this poker show. I remember that, that now. Yeah, that paid really well. Um, so doing like one or two days a month there, as well as a few days a month at the shopping channel, meant that I was okay working at the radio station for free for one day a week because I could fund it through my other stuff. And then I was also doing like hostessing at the Amex and at Sussex Cricket Ground because I just wanted to be in sporting environments. So although, you know, the dream was never to be a hostess at these grounds, it helped me just be around a football club or be around a cricket club. Um, and yeah, and basically after doing one day's worth of work experience at the radio station, I just used the time really wisely and I spoke to the presenters about how they organised their shows, how they ran the radio desk, because in local radio, you do everything yourself. You don't have a producer pressing buttons for you. Um, and I just sat in and I was an absolute nerd and I just watched how they worked. And eventually um, I asked if I could do that on the sports show on Saturdays. So I then was going in and helping the sports presenter edit interviews for his show. I watched how he did all of the football interviews and stuff like that. And I just, it was just lucky, really. He decided to go traveling for a couple of months and my boss offered me the role for three months. So you I- You say it's lucky. If you keep putting yourself in the environment where you can get the chance- Yeah. That yeah. It's just like football players. I work with football players and I'm just like, look, just keep working hard and one day someone will get injured. 
and you'll get your chance and it's the same in the media or any type of work especially in the media you just you've got to be in the right place in the right time but if you keep putting yourself in the right place then eventually the time will come yeah absolutely and that's what happened at juice I was in the right place at the right time he took his three-month sabbatical went traveling um and I did well on the show and so when he came back the boss just said to me I'd actually prefer if you carried on so I was like oh my god okay um but at that point I'd left the shopping channel completely and Sky Poker um went under and so I actually only had that radio show and local radio doesn't pay very well so I then actually had to take a massive step back because I'd gone from you know presenting these live TV shows to then just having a very small sports radio show and it didn't pay the bills. So I was then working a lot to fund that by doing a lot of these hostessing gigs and flyering and some hideous jobs that I hated doing. But I was determined to make it work. And so I started writing to every channel you can think of from Sky Sports to BT Sport to Eurosport, ESPN, I was finding random email addresses online and just emailing people. And the the feedback I kept getting was, we like you, but you don't have enough experience in sport. And I was like, but how am I going to get that experience if you don't give me it? Like, I'm doing this radio show. Like, just give me a chance. But I took it on board and I thought to myself, actually, they're all saying the same thing. So why don't I fake the experience? <laughs> so... What I did was I hired a camera guy who I met at Bid TV and I asked him to go around with me for the day and to film outside football grounds and sporting venues as if I was that reporter. Because if I send that to people, they can see me in that environment working and they might think, oh, okay, she can do it. So I did. So I went to um, QPR, Arsenal. It was the summer of the Olympics. So I went to Trafalgar Square and did loads of stuff, box pops with um, people about the Olympics. I went to Wimbledon because it was summer and there was tennis on. And I basically just faked that I was a sports reporter working at all these really cool things. Um, And it worked, basically. I started sending that out to people. And then all of a sudden they were like, oh, okay, come in for a chat. And that's how I got my first lucky break, which was at ESPN, which was annoyingly doing rugby which I was like I don't know anything about I remember rugby. that my sport yep. um and I so I took a rugby magazine on a Hindu with me like that I mean that is literally ridiculous isn't it um but I came back and it was the rugby world cup and so I did some box pops outside the rugby world cup for ESPN and it was off the back of that that I thought if I'm going to be taken seriously I need to stand out from other female presenters and so I decided to go back to university and do an NCTJ in journalism because that was another bit of feedback that I had was if you want to be a sports journalist then you need an official journalism qualification now I'm not sure how accurate that actually is because I know yeah, a lot I of... don't I, I don't believe yeah. in that yeah. no yeah. I, know, yeah. I know a lot of other sports presenters. look at Lee Clayton who I interviewed at Talk Sport at 16 he just got a job as you know in in the sun just as in the mail room and then worked his way up <laughs> didn't go to university so But it worked for you, though. It worked because I think it's probably different for females, and it definitely was six years ago when I started. So that's also a a massive thing to mention is the fact that when I was working at Talk Sport, it was just there were zero females. It was 
all male, as you talked about earlier. Now you see a lot more females in sport, but when you were trying to get into it, you were one. You were really one of the first to get big, big jobs in for women in sport. I think there was like a handful of females. I'm talking about in football particularly. It was for me. It always looked as though the only way in was by doing something like Sky Sports News, and yeah. that's an incredible place to work. And you have to be extremely knowledgeable across all sports to be able to do that. But I didn't like the idea of just being sat in the studio all the time. I wanted to kind of do a bit of everything. But it always seemed like that was the only pathway in for females. And so I auditioned a couple of times for Sky Sports News and never got the job. But in the end, it was the feedback I had from Sky that actually they said to me, go and get an NCTJ, it might help you. That actually was really a big reason as to why I got the job at BT because I was doing my NCTJ when I met uh, a producer from BT who I met through an agent. So in the background, while all of this work was going on, I was also speaking to a lot of um, TV agents about how to get into the industry and this is what I've done. And that fake showreel that I made helped me speak to this particular agency who really liked my kind of, uh, what's the word for it? Intuition? Is that the right word? To, uh, to go out and basically... Get up and go, yeah. Go, to go out yeah. and actually do something like that. Um, and they introduced me to this producer at BT and I actually went to speak to him about a hockey job. Um, B- BT were looking for like a sideline reporter on the hockey that summer. And this was in like the March. And I knew nothing about hockey, but I was like, if this is going to get me in at BT, then sod it, I'll, I'll do hockey. Um, and so I learned, I literally like Googled the rules of hockey, um, and started following loads of like hockey players on Twitter and stuff. And I was like, Oh God, this really isn't me, but I'm going to fake it until I sort of make it sort of thing. And, uh, went and chatted to this producer and all we spoke, spoke about for an hour was football. And that was my, that was my moment really, because it was after that, that he, he said to me, I was really impressed that you took the job seriously and that you were doing your NCTJ and that, you know, it it meant a lot to you. You were clearly passionate about it. Um, he spent the time to listen to that sports show that I did on my local radio station. He liked my voice. Um, he said that there was the, the person that was going to be doing this show at BT that I would be working with as a co-host also came from a radio background. So he liked the fact that we both had a radio background and that it would be a bit more chatty and informal rather than like a staged TV show. Um, and so, yeah, he said, look, I'm going to, I'm going to put you forwards. Um, I'm not sure like if they'll go for someone that has as little experience as you because it's a big show, but might as well give it a go. And so a week later I went to the BT sports studios and I was petrified it's the biggest tv studio even to this day that i've ever been in it's like it's incredible it's just colossal um and i auditioned with david james was my guest and i was like this is crazy they've even brought an actual footballer in to do the screen test um and it obviously went quite well because a week later they offered me the job on bt sports score and even to this day, I'm still in contact with that particular producer, Matt. And he said to me, like a huge part of why we really liked you is because you, you took it seriously. You were doing your NCTJ. So as much as you don't need it, it definitely 
helped me. It, it made them realise I wasn't just a girl who wanted to be on TV presenting football. I actually like gave a shit and was taking it seriously. Um, so yeah, so that was how I got the job at BT. And then that must have been crazy for you, you know, because really you came from nothing. No one knew who you were to suddenly being in a TV studio with a load of football players who we obviously love and admire. And we watched growing up playing for England and, and you're a big European games. And suddenly you're literally not that long ago, you're working on this local radio station and then you're presenting in front of millions of people. That must have been incredibly nerve-wracking, but also when you look back, it's probably the most ex- probably the most exciting thing you've ever done, that first show that you had to do. Yeah, it was, it was so surreal. I mean, BT were incredible with me though. Like they made me feel so comfortable. They were like, if you want to come in however many times before the first show, just to practice and get comfortable in the environment like do it um so they gave me all the resources I needed and there's an amazing team behind the scenes that made sure that you know we were we were ready but with a show like BT Sports Score you can't script anything because you're reacting to live football results so that was probably the most terrifying part is I was used to live TV in an environment where it's fairly controlled. You know what you're going to talk about next. You know, you know what you're going to do. That's what Sky Poker was like. That's what um, the shopping channel was like to a certain degree. Whereas this was like, yeah, let's talk about the football. Yeah, the scores will come in. You just read them off the video printer, talk about the players, talk about what you see in front of you on the screens. And I was like, oh my God, this is terrifying. Because you're just worried that you're going to say something wrong or that someone's going to disagree with what you've said. Um, and then you're going to be embarrassed on live TV. But yeah, to be honest, the most terrifying part about the first day, because by the time it got to it, like I believed in my own knowledge and ability and the amount of prep I did ready for that first day. The most terrifying part is they made me walk down the stairs for the opening shot. And I was like, guys, you're making me do this in heels. Like imagine like first appearance on BT Sport and I stack it down the stairs. That was probably one of the things that me and my wife were like, yeah, don't fall over, first of all. I remember that. And then, like, I suppose one of the funniest things about you is is you're one of the lads (laughs) off camera. You really are. You're just so down to earth. And and we were like, don't swear. Yeah. Just face it. Off camera, you swear a lot. And have you, one of the questions, have you, I haven't seen you do it, but have you actually sworn on TV yet? No, I haven't. Like, it's a miracle. And I've still still got a job. do you know what? It's weird. You kind of go into this zone of like non-swearing, which I guess you probably do as a parent. Like, I'm not, I'm not a parent. Yeah, but we do. Yeah, but there are moments where it slips out. But I know what yeah. you mean. Obviously, I've worked in the media as well, and there is this somehow this switch. I don't know but what even it is. then, I've heard people do it and say the wrong yeah. thing, or yeah. you know, doing it when they think they're off air and they're actually on air. So, suppressed yeah. that you have it, Jules. I know it is actually I deserve a medal for that to be honest it was it was harder when I first started on the shopping channel I think like I said before I had this like incredible training ground of three years of live tv there where I learned not to swear Um, and it was when I started there that like all of my mates from Brighton at the time were saying to me like how have you not sworn like how have you not sworn on live tv so by the time I got to BT I'd had about five years worth of I suppose, live radio and TV experience. So I was pretty well trained by that point. So there haven't been any slip-ups yet. 
Um, hopefully never. Now, now, now I've brought this up. We'll see what <laughs> happens. And what do you prefer, studio or pitch side? Because you do a lot of pitch side stuff as well as studio. And we were chatting about this just briefly before we came on. But what do you prefer? So hard to pick. Um, my dream scenario is, oh, it's hard, you know. There's benefits to both. My dream scenario is hosting a game pitch side, if that makes sense. Um, yep. because, because often what you'll get is if you're hosting, you're in a studio, if you're reporting, then you're obviously at the game. Um, and obviously as a football fan, there is nothing better than being in a live stadium and hearing the atmosphere and seeing the players up close and being able to watch it from, from that view is better than obviously watching it on a screen in a studio. Of course it is. And obviously when you love the game and you love just being around it, just being in that atmosphere, you can't beat. So being at the grounds is the best. But the challenge of that is that when you're hosting and you're pitch side, there's limitations and you have to think about a lot of th- a lot more things than if you're in a controlled environment of a studio. When you're in the controlled environment of a studio, you obviously don't have the noise interference from the crowd. You don't have to think about a ball maybe coming behind you and almost hitting you in the head when the players are warming up behind you. It's or a water those- sprinkler coming on as you're doing exactly. it. Yeah, Exactly. There's all those things to think about. So when you're pitch side hosting, it's definitely harder. Um, and again, as a female, you have to really think about your voice because you don't want to project too much and then become really high pitched because that's a horrible sound for people at home. So you have to think a lot more about how you sound, how you deliver things. Um, and, and yeah, I think the, 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 the noise is the hardest thing because you've got to remember, we've got about five people talking to us in our ear while we're live actually having that conversation. So I'm listening to a director, a producer, a PA. Like, there's so much going on in my ear as well as listening, like making sure you're... You want to filter out the crowd, but you also want to hear it enough that you can respond to it if they're booing or if they're cheering or whatever it might be. But then you're also listening to your guests through your earpiece as well. So you're trying to hear everything at the same time, piece it all together, as well as actually ask some decent questions and follow a conversation and then hit your counts and get to the break at the right time. And there's so much going on. So it definitely makes it harder, but it's the best buzz that you'll ever get when you host a game pitch side. So I was actually really lucky with um, the Channel 4 games, the England stuff, that we tended to use pitch side for pre-match and then we'd go to the studio for half-time and post-match, which then made those bits slightly more controlled. Uh, Again, it's still difficult because you've still got to contend with noise and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, I love both. It's hard to pick because in a studio, you then also get the benefit of having everyone around you so you've got such a big team and you get to see everyone and hang out and you know it's just a bit more comfortable you don't have to think about you know it's silly things but as a female do I wear lip gloss if it's windy no because then my hair is going to stick to my mouth while I'm talking it's ridiculous there's so many things to think about when you're actually out in the wild whereas when you're in the studio it's a little bit more simple but um yeah, there's, there's benefits to both. I love I love them both in equal measure. But as a football fan, getting to go to the grounds is the best experience. And what's it like being a female in a very male orientated sport? What's it like for you? It must it must be good. It must be. What are the positives and negatives of it? 
Well, I think the it's largely positive, to be honest, but I think I've been fortunate because I certainly came into the industry at a time where there was a want and a need for more women. And so I've benefited from the fact that there has been more opportunities. Um, and I feel really lucky that I've, I've come into the industry at this time. It still has its challenges. It's not easy. You still, I think, as females, we probably are judged more harshly than our male counterparts. Um, if I make a mistake on air and say something that's not come out quite right, I'd be criticised for being a girl, not because I'm just a human being that makes mistakes. And when you work in live TV or any kind of live environment, radio, TV, you name it, if, you're not, if you've not made a mistake live on air, you're not human. Like, mistakes happen. And yet, as a female, you would be criticised, oh, what's this woman doing on this programme? Whereas if a man made the exact same mistake, they wouldn't be criticised for being a man. Like, their sex wouldn't even come into the conversation. Um, so yeah, I do think you're, we're judged more harshly, but to be honest, I see that as just, I see it as a challenge. Like I like proving people wrong and hopefully not ever making a mistake and just making sure that every time I'm live on air, like I nail it. And the only way to do that is to go into everything you do hundred percent prepared, be passionate, let the natural kind of love for what you're doing just come across, um, and just have fun. I think like for so long, football has been so serious. And really, when you watch football with your mates, it's just a laugh. And so that's the one thing I've always been really sort of keen to do is just like whenever I'm on air, like feel how it feels. And if it's a fun moment, have fun. If it's a serious moment, take it more seriously. But but really, you I did just... that calling Michael Owen. Gemma <laughs> Owen, Gemma Owen from Love Island's dad. That that was oh, I, I love. I think you've got this big moment presenting an England game on Channel Four, and I love the fact that you just took a massive gamble because you just don't know how a football player is gonna gonna take that. And what obviously, what was it like for Michael? Was he did he joke about that off air? Yeah, I think this is the other thing that people don't really see uh, when you see four people on screen working in a studio or working pitch side is you don't see what happens behind the scenes and how these former footballers are like they're all normal human beings and we've spent a lot of time together traveling to these England games we all get the same flights over we stay in the same hotels we eat dinner together we eat breakfast together like you are literally like a family when you travel to these matches and so we'd spent a lot of time with Michael leading up to that Germany game, which was the day after Love Island aired when Gemma went into the villa. And so it was the first thing I said to him, like on the first day that we all met up in Hungary um, to do the first England game was, it was funny because we all sat around in a circle in the hotel bar and I arrived last because I was late, shock. And um, I got down there and said hello to everyone. And as soon as I sat down, I went, Michael, your daughter's going on Love Island. Oh my God. And he went, you've gone straight in there. And everyone else was like, Jules, it was the elephant in the room. No one's mentioned it. I was like, why is no one mentioning it? It's what everyone wants to know. Like, how's Michael feeling about this? Um, and so we just had a bit of a laugh about it, to be honest. So what else can you do? Like, you know, it's something that she chose to do. She's an adult. And he was like, you know, if that's what she wants to do, that's what she wants to do. And so I knew he'd be okay with it because we get along well enough that I knew you know, I'd never do anything to make anyone feel uncomfortable. And we'd had enough of a laugh about it 
the and night he's actually the- Michael. You know, sometimes gets criticised for being quite boring when he does commentary and, and all of that. But outside of football, everyone says he's got the best sense of humour and he's he's great fun. Yeah, he's so much fun. And yeah, we, we had such a laugh working on those England games. And so I knew by the time that came around, like the night before when that Love Island episode aired, we were out for dinner in this like, well, we were in like a kind of uh, beer garden in Germany, in Munich somewhere. And he had it on his phone. And we were all sat around dinner, like watching and his wife was sending him videos of Gemma going in because he wasn't watching it live. He was just getting video clips from from his wife. And um, we were you know, we were all like taking the mick out of him. It was like, oh, my God. Like, rah, rah, rah. So I knew he'd be able to take it. And also, it's just fun. It's not like I'm going to sit there and start grilling him about it on TV. It was just a little quick, little quip. And then we move on. Um but yeah, it was fun. It, it would have felt wrong not to mention it because it's what the whole nation were talking about. And, and that's, again, what I mean about like feeling a moment. Like if we went on air and didn't mention that, it would almost look weird. Like it would look weird for me to have not said something. So, yeah, I, I just I decided that was the right thing to do. Mention it at the top and then move on and don't talk about it again, because obviously people are there to watch the football. So you get to work with some amazing former football players. But who are the most fun to work with? Oh my God. Well, last year doing the West Ham games for BT on the Europa League, um, I don't think I've ever had so much fun in my whole life. Like working with Joe Cole and Carlton Cole, they are just like two of the most hilarious people. And then you put them together and they are, they're just gold. Um, How you see them on air is exactly what they're like off camera. But I think the most wonderful thing about the two of them is they're just genuine, lovely human beings. And like, they care and they ask you how you are and how your family are and what have you been up to like outside of work. And yeah, I think just the natural chemistry between us three, um, it was just so easy. Um, so I would say like they've been two of the most fun, but then no one's not fun. I'm not going to lie. Like it's such a great environment to work in because ultimately these are former football players who have retired because they've got to that point in their career where they can no longer play for whatever reason. And the reason they work in the media is because they want to still be close to the game they love. Like, so them going to work and being able to talk about football is the next best thing to playing. So they're all in a good mood. They want to have fun. They want to enjoy it. And so there's no one that's, that doesn't like to have a laugh, you know, like, Robbie Savage gets such a bad rep, but he is hilarious. He's like a big kid. He walks into the green room and he's like, all right, losers. Like, he's exactly as you'd imagine he would be in a dressing room. Um, He's so fun. Um, Michael Richards, who I've been lucky enough to work on the Champions League with CBS, is, again, exactly as he is on screen. I think he's my favourite pundit at the moment, if I'm honest. He is just absolutely hilarious. And you can tell everyone loves working with him. Yeah, his laugh is infectious and he's one of those who walks into a room and like, he's always just got something funny to sort of say or add to and yeah, everyone's great. And Steve Sidwell, I always say he's one of my favourite people to work with and that's not biased because he used to play for Brighton, but he he's also just hilarious and yeah, there's there's people who you just get on with really well, if that makes sense. <laughs> you get offered all of the shows. What celebrity random show would you be interested in going on? Oh, don't do this to me. Um, I don't know. Because, like, I'd be terrible at all of them, honestly, James. Like, 
me and one, we and one of my other friends were talking about SAS who dares wins the other day. Um, and I was like, I would be so bad. Like I wouldn't get past the, the, the first, I wouldn't get past the interview. Um, I, like the girls have always said to me like, Oh, would you go on strictly? And like, to be honest, I'd love to learn how to dance because anyone who knows me knows I literally, like, I've got two left feet. I'm terrible. I can dance like silly dancing, but you make me learn a routine and I, it's like, I don't know what happens to my brain, but it just can't do it. Um, but I would love to learn how to dance. So, like, that's one that I would actually would enjoy doing. Um, you know I love cooking and my dad obviously being a chef. There you go, master chef, celebrity master chef. There we but go. Then, but then also... Can you imagine the pressure? People are like, oh, her dad's a chef. She's going to be good. Like, what if I'm rubbish? And then, like, the jungle, like, obviously is, like, to me, that that's, like, the most entertaining one of those shows, um, mainly because of Ant and Dec, because they're just the absolute best. But I would be awful. Like, I cleaned out my shed the other day, and there was, like, I couldn't even, like, move a daddy long legs. Like, what, like, how would I be able to do Well, that makes a good that? TV. So you, you don't want to start saying that type of thing. Because if you ever do go on it, they now know that <laughs> don't put a, put a spider. To be honest, my schedule's too busy. I can't fit any of it in. So for now, I'm sticking to the football. <laughs> and before you go, there's just one last thing that I want to talk about. And that is FPL. You're obviously a massive FPL Ooh. fan. That was one of the first shows that you did in sport. So have you got any must-haves for this FPL season? Oh, God, that's so hard because I haven't done my team yet. Um, I keep saying I need to actually do my team. And, like, a few people have been like, have you renewed your, your league yet? And I'm like, no, shit, like, I've been too busy. Like, I haven't done it. Um, you know what? I'm going to do it as soon as we finish this. I'm going to sit down in the garden and I'm going to set up my team. Um, any must-haves? Um, I suppose if you haven't really looked in detail in regards to price, who, what players do you think are going to do really well this year is probably the best way of putting it. Well, I think everyone's talking about Haaland and how he's going to do. Um, I'm not convinced he's going to start every game at the start. Oh, the way Pep, the way Pep is, I just, I can't, I can't see him playing every game. Honestly, like I can't. I think he's going to ease him in. I don't know why I think that, but I do. Um, I could be completely wrong, um, but I think like a few months into the season. He's then going to get regular minutes. And I think him and Grealish are going to be like lethal together. Um, and and obviously KDB, who's just unbelievable. But he's so expensive. I, I can never fit him in. Um, that, but yeah, yeah. I, Grealish is cheap this year. So yeah. I'm not probably going to start with Grealish because I think it's a bit of a risk. But yeah. I he, I got a feeling he might have a big year this year. Yeah, I've, I've got a feeling too. But I don't, I don't think they're players to start the season with. I think... Like, your Liverpool players are the ones. Like, Trent will be absolutely nailed in my team. He's probably the first name in my team sheet. Um, Salah, always. I, I never start a season with... Well, since Salah's come to the Premier League, he's always been in my team. But then there's so much more value in Luis Diaz. Um, so it's hard. It's hard because I think he had such a good end to the season. Um, and then, I don't know why, but I've got a good feeling about Rhys James as well. Um so I think Reese James will probably be... I've got Reese James in my team at the moment. My only concern is, is there's a lot of talk that he might be used as a right centre-back yeah. rather than a wing-back some of the games. Yeah. So that's my only concern is, is he might not get as much points if he's used as, as a centre-back. Exactly. So yeah, I, I think it's going to be the usuals to start the season. I never really like having like 
new additions to the Premier League straight away because you worry about how they're going to settle in. Um, and then with a team like Man City, it's so hard to know who's even going to bloody start. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably going to be pretty safe to start the season. Um, I think Jesse Lingard will is quite a good shout because although we're not sure how Forrest are going to get on in the Premier League, he will obviously start every game as long as he's fit. And if he's the main man at Forest and everything goes through him in terms of goals, he could be pretty decent value um, and could be quite a good pick. So he'll probably be in my starting 11 for the first game week of the season. But again, I haven't looked too much into it yet. So my first draft, I'll probably put on my Instagram page by the weekend. Awesome. I look forward to that. And the mighty Brighton before we go... Are you hoping for another good season? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, it's hard because last year was so good. Um, it was almost like dreamland last year. The fact that we went on that weird run where Brighton just couldn't pick up a win. And I look back at that sort of nine game spell, I think it was, and think if Brighton had won two of those, we'd have, we'd have, pretty much finished in a European position, which is just insane. And I could have been covering them on BT Sport, but no. Um, what's the aim this year? I mean, I think the aim is just to build on, on what Graham Potter has, has sort of done last year. Um, and yeah, hopefully another top half finish. That's that's the aim now, I think. Um, it's always the difficulty is with strikers. And obviously with this Neil Mope potentially leaving Saga at the moment and therefore not having anyone with a lot of Premier League experience to replace those goals. Obviously, Danny Welbeck, bless him, like tends to pick up injuries every couple of months. And the new signing, we're still not sure, you know, like how ready he is for Premier League football. I mean, he talks a good game, so we'll see how he gets on, Dennis Undav. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. I, I hope it's another good season. Um, I, I trust the process at Brighton. So although like there's not been any like massive signings, the key is keeping Kukurea, I think, and hoping that City don't don't get him off our hands. Um, but by the looks of it, they're not going to spend the money that Brighton value him at. And if they do, then Brighton will have a lot of money to spend. So either way, it's sort of win win. But ideally want to keep hold of him because he's brilliant so yeah fingers crossed build on build on last season and a not another top half of the table finish as long as we finish above Southampton James it's fine you probably will but we'll see we've got a lot of good young players we've just signed they're right we're either going to be a surprise this year or we're going to go down it will probably be one of the two with the amount of youngsters we've we've brought in. But thank you so much for coming on today, Jules. It's been absolute pleasure having you on. And I really look forward to watching your the new EFL show on BT and everything that you do. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. And yeah, enjoy the season. Thank you for listening to the Life in Football podcast with Jules Breach. With the England ladies team doing an incredible job reaching the final of the Euros, I've got a great guest coming up next week, a former professional footballer and sports journalist who now represents some of the most well-known names in men's and women's football. So you don't want to miss that one. Remember to follow the show on social media at Life in Football and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can see video clips from all of our podcasts.